This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of May 8th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. The 2023 Indiana General Assembly wrapped up about a week ago, specifically 2.47 a.m. on April, April 28th. After your state lawmakers hammered out a $44.6 billion budget for the next two years, filed 1,154 bills, and approved 250 of them. Governor Eric Holcomb has now signed all 252 as of May 4th. As you know, both the Indiana House and the Indiana Senate have Republican supermajorities, so the GOP generally did not need support from Democrats to pass its priorities. And so, these laws now venture out into the world to do the bidding of our elected representatives. It was hard to miss the big debates this year over the proposed ban on gender transition procedures for minors, which is now law, as are the controversial proposals to expand eligibility for the state's school voucher program, ban instruction on human sexuality in grades kindergarten through third, and forbid state retirement system managers from investing in companies based on environmental and social factors. Now, for journalists who cover state government, the end of the legislative session is just the beginning. Now they must follow these laws and report on their consequences. We can assume that lawmakers go into these sessions with the best of intentions, but sometimes the laws they produce don't work as intended. Sometimes they immediately end up in the court system through legal challenges. And sometimes they require a Herculean amount of work to simply get up and running. The reporters who covered this year's session already have earmarked the laws that bear more investigation, and we have two of them on the podcast this week. Peter Blanchard, who covers politics and state government for IBJ, and Casey Smith, who covers the same for the not-for-profit newsroom, Indiana Capital Chronicle. Here's our session. I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Peter Blanchard, who covers state government for IBJ. Pete, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me, Mason. And we are very fortunate to have the perspective of Casey Smith, a reporter for Indiana Capital Chronicle, who either, I think by my count, wrote or co-wrote about 250 stories during the 110-day legislative session. I tried. (laughs) Wow. I tried to go through the archive. It felt like about 250. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the 2023 budget writing session ended a little bit less than a week ago. I'm told at 2.47 in the morning on that Friday, uh, you've had some time to stew on the 252 bills that were passed the session and sent to Governor Eric Holcomb. We can assume lawmakers go into these sessions with the best of intentions, but sometimes the bills don't work as intended or they hit a legal challenge or they require a ton of work to function in the real world. So I wanted to ask what you plan on keeping your eyes on uh, as we go forward and these these laws venture out into the real world. The first thing I did want to ask you about was the last day of the session where lawmakers seem like they're poised to vote on a final version of the $44.6 billion biennial budget, I guess sometime by the end of the day, but then there was a holdup. <laughs> Can you walk me through that? What was the holdup? How did that play out over the course of the day and then overnight and then into the early morning? So we can both weigh in on this because we were there. So Wednesday we come in. This is the day before the supposed last day of the session. And that is when House and Senate Republicans come out and they say, we've made a compromise on the budget. Here it is. 
the big takeaway was a nearly universal expansion of the private school vouchers. Um, there was also big spending on healthcare, um, accelerated uh, tax cuts. So we assumed that that was the compromise and that we were going to come back in Thursday. We were going to get through the last of some bills. And of course, the budget was going to go through both chambers. When we came in Thursday morning, I started to get phone calls and texts about, hey, the the way that it was first, I was first told was there was some sort of error in the budget, a mistake. They did something wrong and they're going to have to make a fix. So there was this rumor circulating for several, several hours in the morning at the state house about some sort of problem that maybe it was with the math. Particularly, we found out a few hours in that it had to do with the school runs, which is the school funding, how much money all the schools are going to get. So long story short, I find out by early afternoon, it's not an error. It's that essentially Republicans, and it sounded like especially maybe Senate Republicans, were not happy with what the voucher expansion meant for the public schools in their districts, that those schools were not going to be getting as much money, especially in the the second year of the biennium. So there were some last-minute meetings Thursday um, between school officials Republicans were in caucus, and essentially the the fix, quote unquote, was let's throw another three hundred and ten million dollars. The Senate Republicans essentially had to take away from the pre ninety six fund pay down. They had a billion dollars they wanted to give. They had to take three hundred and ten away from that to put back into the school funding formula to try and up uh, how much schools were going to get. And so that just pushed the whole day Thursday. It pushed Thursday into Friday morning after we got through all the other bills that. You know, there there were other bills happening Friday or Thursday, excuse me, by the way. But the budget was the big, uh, the big oopsie of the day was, oh, no, we need to give schools more um, than we had intended to on Wednesday. So the schools basically had 24 hour, <laughs> I mean, basically 24 hours to mobilize and call their representatives and yeah. say, wait a second, what is, what is, how is this expansion affecting us? And we don't like it. It was less than that. I was hearing... By Thursday morning, I was being told that there were conversations being had with Senator Mishler 9, 10 o'clock Wednesday night and saying, hey, we need to come in tomorrow and you need to do something about this. And supposedly there was a a conversation that happened Wednesday night uh, where it, they the school officials were being told, hey, we're going to come back tomorrow. We're going to do something about this. But we didn't know what exactly. So the public schools end up with 312 million dollars more. It wasn't just public schools, though. So oh. some of that money also ended up going into the the choice scholarships, the voucher schools also. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an increase for public schools, but it was also an increase for, for, for the voucher schools also. And do we have any sense of whether or not that that, that met with approval from, from the people back home who were it was. They were happy to get more. Yes, I'm. Sh- I mean, would they have liked to see even more? Absolutely. Would they have liked to see maybe not so much have gone towards the voucher expansion? Absolutely. But I mean, I don't think they're gonna. The way that I was told is we're we're not going to be upset with with the little bit more that we got because we could have just gotten nothing more. So. So it, tell me a little bit more about the expansion of the voucher program. So. There were multiple proposals as the budget went through its multiple iterations during the session. But what they landed on essentially is 
there's an income ceiling. You have you can only make three hundred. It was before this budget. You could have you if a family of four, you could make three hundred percent of the level that would be the income level required to qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, and then in addition to that, you had to meet one of these eight pathways that I won't even get into because they are co they're complicated. And lawmakers themselves said that that was in the final version of the budget that we ended up with. They got so rid is, of those eight pathways. This is for for me to determine if I'm eligible to receive exactly. this voucher money so I could go to a private school yes. or a charter school. It, this would be a voucher school. OK, yes. voucher school. Yes. Right. So they basically increased how much to I, 400 percent. So now <laughs> if you're a family of four in Indiana, you can make. $220,000 or less and qualify for a voucher, which might, from what I'm told, that's 97, over 97% of Hoosier families now qualify for a voucher. So it's it's a near universal expansion. Wow. I just had like a light bulb moment. So I am like <laughs> a solid middle class Mason King. Uh, I am eligible for the vouchers because yes. I'm family of three. If you are the governor of Indiana right now, the salary that the, the, the governor makes, you call, your family would qualify for vouchers. Okay. So... I mean, you also you also specialize in education, certainly um, uh, in terms of, of uh, state government. What are you going to be looking for here in this next year uh, as a potential repercussions or consequences of this voucher expansion? So I think one of the first things that we're going to be looking at over the next year is with the voucher expansion have been projections for obviously an influx and increase in students who participate in the voucher program. So will that be the case? Will it be as high of project? Will it be 40, 50,000 more students over the biennium who, who take part in the voucher program? I don't know. So that's something that we're going to be watching for. In terms of what it means for public schools, we have obviously students leaving those districts if that's going to be the case. So there are financial impacts for districts in that way. But it's what I'm going to be looking at with the public school districts over the next couple of years is not just the impact of the voucher expansion alone, but also there were a lot of funding boosts for charter schools, which are separate in this budget. Um, and for Marion, Lake, St. Joe, and Vanderburg counties, um, there are now requirements for public, these traditional public school districts that have charter schools in their district. They have to share property taxes with them. There, there are other um requirements on on the tax front that are going to their implications for schools do i remember like if there's a refer a referendum for example they do they have to share they would so, have to share the referendum yes. money with with the charter schools yes exactly okay. so there are going to be implications there so there's there's a compound effect that we're going to see on public per traditional public schools because charter schools are also public schools i'll, I'll emphasize that um, but on the traditional public schools and the and school corporations 1499, which was the, the property tax measures, um, Senate Bill 391, which is the charter school measure, and then obviously the budget. So there are three kind of compound things here for public schools over the next couple of years, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the implications will be. This yet. is a very specific set of counties. I mean, we're, four, we're talking about four counties out of 92. Uh, why, why did they just focus on those four counties? So Republican lawmakers, so they were asked, so Democrats were asking this over and, and some Republicans. So in like Vanderbilt County, um, down in Evansville area, were like, hey, why, why are we doing this, Senator Becker? Um, but essentially, Republican lawmakers were saying that these four counties have the vast majority of the school's charter school students located within those counties. So there are other counties, like there are other, like Allen County, Fort Wayne area, there are charter schools up there as well. But um, I guess the 
the argument there was these four counties have the majority of students who attend a charter school. They live in those four counties. Also on the education front, my understanding, there's a bill in which uh, school administrators no longer would be required to discuss topics like class size and curriculum and student discipline with teachers in their union. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Can you explain this in, in, in the way that perhaps the, the, the bill's author explained it? Well, the way the bill's author has, that Senator Rogers has maintained is that there are a lot in the, there's a lot in the statute that um, requirements and such for teachers, for, for administrators, to the extent that Senator Rogers and some others say that it's holding teachers back, it's holding schools back from letting teachers do their jobs, getting things done, so on and so forth. So they're trying to take away requirements to uh, make it easier for schools, teachers, administrators to do their jobs. Right. It's like a red tape kind of argument. Yes. So the teachers union, so ISTA, others um, have maintained absolutely not. This is a union busting bill. This, you know, is infringement on collective bargaining. This is going to take away the ability for teachers to have important discussions with administrators about things like class size, like you mentioned, um, or disciplinary matters with students. It takes away some of the teacher training requirements as well that teachers themselves have said, no, I think we need to still have these in place. So there are very differing opinions on that Senate Bill 486. So then as you look ahead to the next school year, um, what would be something that you'd be on the lookout for? Well, teachers said so they, they rallied hard at the state house, especially the last two weeks of, ses- of, of session, specifically against Senate Bill 486, which is that what they call the union busting bill. Many who got up and spoke said, hey, there are already so many things going on in schools that make it hard for teachers to do their jobs. We have all these other bills, by the way, that make the classroom culture more complicated. Um, we already have a teacher shortage crisis. You know, if a bill like this goes through, you're going to see even more teachers leave the profession. So that's one follow up. Are more teachers going to be leaving as a result of not just this piece of legislation, but this coupled with others? Um, again, I, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to see. So that's something I'm also going to be watching for. Let's take a break from education real quick and, and jump into something I am completely unqualified to talk about with medicine. Let's take a look at House Enrolled Act 1568, which I understand allows pharmacists to be able to prescribe birth control under limited circumstances. How is that different from the current situation? I assume that they cannot prescribe birth control now. That's right. They they, they cannot. Uh, you have to get you know prescription from a, a doctor or another health professional. Um, and uh, it differs state by state, but that's that's currently the law in Indiana. Some states uh, pharmacists are allowed to do that. Um, but my understanding is the 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 argument for that from from the Democratic side was that look, you know, uh, lawmakers have you know passed this strict abortion ban. You know, what's the next step? And and you know, how can we uh, you know ensure that um, you know Hoosier women have the resources they need regarding pregnancy? And so you know, Democrats have been pushing for more access to uh, contraceptives um, and and birth control. And this is another way to to expand access. But you had an argument from uh, Republicans that um, uh, some Republicans in, in the House and Senate uh, that basically said, you know, we shouldn't be leaving this up to pharmacists. There are, uh, you know, there are rare cases where um, you know health complications can result, 
you know, from taking birth control um, and, and certain uh, contraceptives. So, you know, we need to really uh, leave this in the hands of uh, physicians. Um, but ultimately, uh, um, Democrats were kind of able to claim a small victory on that one. They were able to get that passed. And uh, so now pharmacists will be able to do that. So going forward, what are you going to be looking for? So around that bill yeah. specifically, you know, I suppose there could be uh, there could be legal challenges to that um, by, say, maybe, you know, certain uh, uh, pro-life groups, pro-family groups. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, it's going to be, you know, it's hard to say what the uh, what the immediate impact of, of that will be. There's another there's a couple other health care bills that, that went through this session and. Um, you know, it's possible that, you know, this sort of um, loosening of restrictions on contraceptives could maybe, you know, make a dent in uh, Indiana's, you know, high maternal mortality rate. But it kind of remains to be seen. And this is a voluntary program for the pharmacist. I do not have to prescribe contraceptives if I'm not interested. That's my understanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So would be at some point we'd be able to track like how many of this uh, state's pharmacists have applied to be able to do this. Yeah, I imagine you'd be able to to access that data through the, the state health department. Yeah. Staying on the medical front, obviously, a lot of the controversy during the session stemmed from Senate Bill 480, which prohibits doctors from providing gender transition procedures for people under the age of 18. So under this law, which goes into effect July 1st, parents can no longer authorize gender affirming care for the children, including puberty blockers, hormone replacement therapy and surgical interventions. Although we should point out that there was no evidence that minors have received gender altering surgeries in Indiana. So what do we know about the blowback against this bill so far? So the ACLU of Indiana has already um, filed a lawsuit. They, they filed a lawsuit, I, I believe, within hours after, uh, you know, the House and Senate um, passed off on this bill. And, you know, they filed a lawsuit on behalf of, um, you know, uh, a transgender child and their their family that um, you know say this care is is medically necessary. So uh, you know so we're already seeing legal challenges there, and you know the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit just last week against the state of Tennessee, uh, which passed a very similar law um, in in Missouri. A judge temporarily blocked an emergency rule that was imposed by the state's attorney general uh, on gender affirming care. So this is, you know, pretty legally tenuous legislation. And I think you even, you know, heard that a little bit. He didn't come right out and say it, but Governor Eric Holcomb, uh, you know, when he was asked about this bill, said it was clear as mud. And I got the sense that maybe he felt about this bill the same way he felt about the ban on uh, transgender kids playing sports, um, you know, which he ended up vetoing. But of course, uh, vetoes can be overridden by a simple majority. Uh, so, you know, even if you were to veto Senate Bill 480, um, lawmakers would just come back and and overturn that veto. Yeah. So and the and the one for sports was ve was uh, was overturned. The was veto vetoed was overturned. And was overturned. Yeah, yes. yeah, as soon as they had the opportunity. And also, uh, you know, that that bill has been uh, facing legal challenges, too. So, um, you know, a lot of these a lot of these, uh, you know, divisive issues uh, parents feel strongly about. And you also have, you know, medical professionals testifying that, you know, yes, this this care is medically necessary. Another bill that received a lot of uh, public debate was House Bill 14, excuse me, uh, 1447, which appeared to be dead at the end of the session until it was resurrected at the last minute. And essentially, it targets materials 
deemed obscene or harmful to minors in school libraries. Uh, so it requires school libraries to publicly post lists of books in their collection and create a formal grievance process for parents and the community members who live in the district to object to certain materials in circulation. Uh, what potential consequences would you be watching related to that bill? I just want to note that it was not always House Bill 1447. It started in SB 12. It went to SB 3, I want to say 80s. I don't even, it went to another Senate bill. Then like the last, I don't even remember, the last day or day before the last day of session, it ended up in 1447. The language itself, which is a, a separate bill that had to deal with um, uh, surveys given to students. And there had been a lot of talk about you know, where this language was going to go or if it had died. So, I mean, it really went through the ringer this session. But and I should probably point out, this is not necessarily, I mean, that, the way that sometimes legislation jumps from bill to bill, that's not necessarily unusual. No, that's not. Yeah. Um, but this, in particular, this was one that just really went through it this session. Um, and this was, this type of language has been introduced in the legislature for several years prior and had never had made it, you know, this far. Um, and well, and the session obviously made it over the finish line. But in terms of what I'm going to watch for, I I'm still wrapping my head around the final version of the bill a little bit, and some of some of the provisions that are in there, especially as it pertains to um, who could be held like criminally liable and who a prosecutor could hold accountable. That's that there's language in there. Um, that I'm just trying to fully understand if it's a librarian, if it's like a school board member. There's still, I think, a little bit of unpacking to do there. And on that same note, will there be anybody who's who you know, is a prosecutor actually going to press charges against somebody on this kind of stuff ever? It seems unlikely. And we've heard from both sides of the aisle that that seems that it wouldn't be the case, but it's an option now. What will, and then obviously, what will the implication be on books in school libraries? I want to emphasize too that the original, some of the original language also applied to public libraries, but the final version only applies to school libraries. Um, so schools have to have, schools and school boards have to have this process in place for parents to object or petition to a book. What books are they going to be petitioning to? What are the school board decisions going to be? There also has to be an appeals process in place. So how are those going to play out? Um, how much money is this going to cost? You know, if like lawyers end up having to get involved at some point or, or school boards and have to hire legal counsel for this. I don't know. Uh, also in the education realm, uh, there's House Bill 1608, which bans instruction on human sexuality for grades kindergarten through third. And tell me if I'm right here. It also mandates that schools notify parents when a student asks for a name or pronoun change, is that right? The same yes. bill? Yes. Okay. That's kind of a, a bag of worms. What are you looking for here over the next year? I don't completely know yet. I, I, I don't know. I don't even know what to ask schools about this yet. I guess I'm going to be asking for their policies for how they're going to, you know, make sure they're staying in line with the law. Um, I would, you know, we heard a lot of testimony over the course of the session about, even separate from the pronoun issue, um, of sex education in classrooms. And I'm, I heard things all across the board. My understanding from the Department of Education, though, is that typically sex education doesn't start until fourth, but usually not until sixth grade in Indiana. 
I, I went to school here and that's that was the same for me, you know, 20 years ago. But I guess I'm going to be curious too. I, I, I would love to do like a, a look across the state of when is sex education actually starting in the state? What does it consist of across the different schools? And then, on, like I said, on the pronoun issue, um, I don't know how that's going to play out yet. Like, it'd be interesting to hear from students, especially too, once the law goes into effect of how that, how they're going, that's going to affect them. My memory of sex education in IPS 40 years ago was a lot of really very clever animated depictions <laughs> of human sexuality <laughs> that were, that we all pretty much knew already. But uh, I, I think we were happy to have a break from chemistry that particular day. Yeah. I remember a, a video called Just Around the Corner is what I think we used. I'd be curious if they still used and it was on a VHS tape that they would roll in. So I'm not sure if that's still the case. But there was a lot of parents. There were some really upset parents at the State House this session saying they didn't even like the type of sex education their kids were getting. They thought it was inappropriate. So I, I, I don't know what it consists of these days. It, it'll also be interesting to see, you know, Florida was was the first to to pass sort of a, a don't say gay law, as critics uh, call it. Um, you know, banning human sexuality instruction in, in grades K through three. Florida recently expanded that to all grades, and so you have to wonder. Is that uh, right? It, yeah, and so you have to wonder if Indiana is going to follow suit there. Interesting. Which, of course. Our Republican lawmakers here said we don't care what Florida or any other state down south, quote unquote, is doing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that we're going to do our own thing. But I think there there were some themes this session of seeing repeats of certain bills like in Florida, for right. example. There, that, certainly there are trends in, absolutely. In, in Republican legislation and as there are also in Democratic legislation. But in this particular field or this particular uh, subject matter, I mean, you certainly tend to see Sometimes exactly like literally the same language pop up from state to state. Absolutely. Yeah. I have one, uh, one contribution to this, and this is the, the, the name or pronoun change uh, portion of that where, say, someone uh, wants to come to the teacher and say, you know, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm Christopher, but I would prefer if you, if you refer to me as a female and I'd like to be Chris. The thing that occurs to me when I think about my background in, in performing arts and um, all the people that I know who teach music and in theater, these people are often the people that kids will come to first, LGBT kids or LGBTQ kids. These are the people who the kids will come to first because it's an adult, it's a mentor that they trust, and they will have one of their first coming out conversations with that teacher. And I think that the teachers, I mean, they really value, you know, the ability to be a listening ear, and they really value the confidence uh, in which they're trusted with that information. It sounds to me like the intent of this law is to mandate teachers tell parents if a student confides in them that they think they might be more comfortable as another sex. Nine times out of 10, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so in, in particular, in the performing arts, um, I wonder if there isn't going to be some kind of, of crisis or mini crisis uh, among those kind of teachers, because they're the ones who, for the most part, I think shoulder that, I don't want to call it a burden, but shoulder that information from students. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll be wanting to talk to teachers and then, like you said, also to students. Um, I'm wondering what kind of creative even workarounds may start to uh, come up for for this. 
Right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned creative workarounds. I'm thinking of uh, states like Texas where there's a strict abortion ban and, uh, you know, a patient seeking an abortion or, uh, you know, some type of medical care will, will ask their doctor, you know, is can I go to a different state? Can I go to this state? And And the doctor can't, you know, outright say, yes, you can go to this state for abortion care. But, uh, you know, Illinois is really nice this time of year if you want to take a visit. Uh, so I, I sort of think of, uh, <laughs> I wonder if, uh, if, if, like you said, there will be some sort of uh, creative workarounds to, uh, you know, avoid potentially, you know, breaking the law. Okay, let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast featuring state government reporters Peter Blanchard of the IBJ and Casey Smith of Indiana Capital Chronicle. Okay, turning to bills in the financial realm, we have House Bill uh, 1008, which is Indiana's take on the national backlash to ESG investing. That's when environmental, social, and governmental factors are considered when people in the public sphere make investment decisions. So the new law aims at preventing leaders of the state's pension funds or teachers or other government workers or pension funds for teachers, other government workers from investing any of the 45 billion some dollars with firms that consider environmental, social and governance principles. Pete, you work for a business journal. What are we looking for over the next year? Yeah, this this one is a real can of worms. Um and as you mentioned, uh, several states have done this, uh, really kind of the first couple states, Texas, West Virginia, um, you know, passed laws uh, basically saying you can include these um, what they would say are politically driven factors in, in investing uh, or we won't work with you if you do that. Um, now, trying to uh, trying to litigate this in, in practicality is, is quite difficult and uh, you know, the first version of House Bill 1008 that came out uh, from Representative Ethan Manning, um, you know, was was fairly as simple language as you can get in a case like this, you know, saying uh, the Indiana public retirement system can't work with, uh, you know, asset managers uh, and investment firms that that have ESG funds. Well, it turns out all of these investors and asset managers have ESG funds. And so effectively the the original law as it was introduced would have Imperse would have had to find um, new banks and investors to work with and and it would have resulted in uh, something like almost a seven billion dollar loss to the pension fund over the next decade if this law as written were to go through. And so that uh, sent off a lot of alarm bells and uh, from there the bill was just sort of repeatedly watered down. Uh, you know, exempting private equity managers from having to follow this, exempting the state police uh, pension fund, exempting a defined contribution plan. So uh, it really took on a kind of narrower focus. But the gist of it is that 
you know, uh, if the state treasurer, uh, uh, Daniel Elliott, who's a Republican, um, you know, suspects that an asset manager is engaging in ESG investing and not acting, uh, you know, in the best interests of uh, pension holders, um, that he can force in purse to uh, the Indian public retirement system to divest from these different uh, banks and investment funds. Uh, my question is, you know, will he go actually go after everyone? Because the feeling I got talking to people around this bill is that, um, you know, to actually to actually, uh, you know, divest from from these huge companies like Vanguard and 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 uh, BlackRock uh, is really difficult because there really are only a few players in this game. Uh, BlackRock, for instance, has like twenty trillion in assets worldwide. Um, so you really kind of have to to work with them. most of that is mine. Most, that's what I say. <laughs> most of that is Mason's four hundred one k. So you know this might be a case where lawmakers can say they did something on this. You know we went after woke capital, um, but they could actually go after some some uh, you know supposed violators of this and uh, you know we've already seen uh, there's a story came out from the Capitol Chronicle about the state pension fund working with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's uh, uh, you know anti-woke capital firm so we're already sort of seeing maybe the influence uh, that this debate is having on on what the public retirement system does um, but again it, it remains to be seen whether uh, this will actually result in any uh, you know change in as far as what the public retirement system does uh, with its uh, investors' money. Uh, moving on to the surprise of no one, Governor Holcomb has signed a bill that has major implications for the state's ability to encourage economic development. This is House Enrolled Act uh, 1001, which creates a $500 million deal closing fund, provides additional resources for mega deals over $5 billion creates a site acquisition fund for shovel-ready developments and invests an additional $500 million in the READY program, which is a, kind of a regional cooperation program where uh, regions get together and they propose projects and they get some matching funds. But I want to ask about the, the deal closing fund first. We have the creation of $500 million deal closing fund. This allows IEDC, the Indiana Economic Development Corp, uh, to better compete for projects and projects that bring new jobs and that transform uh, industries and, and different areas of, of the state. What questions do you have about how this is going to work out in the real world? So I wonder because, uh, you know, it, it seems like a vague concept, right? What is a deal closing fund? But it, it turns out other states do have this. Um, Illinois has one. It's particularly suited to um, to electric vehicle and, uh, you know, sort of like green energy uh, uh, projects. Um, whereas the IEDC's deal closing fund, you know, it could apply to, uh, you know, advanced manufacturing, uh, logistics, uh, you know, generally uh, science and tech fields. A lot of this deal closing fund is a continuation of what the IEDC already does, which is offer, you know, huge tax breaks and financial incentives to companies that decide to expand here or relocate here. Um, but the, the scale of which has really increased in the last couple of years, where we're talking about billion dollar projects, $2 billion projects. And, you know, which is not to mention that some other states are really dealing at levels like $10 billion projects. And it, it was the idea here that, you know, we really need to have some, some gunpowder to land these big fish because they're getting 
big incentives other places. That's right. Uh, you only have to look as far as Ohio. Uh, you know, uh, you know something like a, a twenty billion dollar, uh, you know, Intel uh, chip plant they're building there. Indiana was, uh, you know, as far as we know, in the running for that. Uh, IEDC will never tell you what they were in the running for, but they're in the running for all these, uh, you know, big mega projects. Um, they're just in the running for the ones they got. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Hundred <laughs> percent uh, uh, success rate. No. Um, uh, a lot of EV projects, a lot of microelectronics, uh, life sciences, what Eli Lilly is doing uh, with their expansion uh, up there um, in, in Boone County. Uh, so, you know, uh, the IEDC will tell you, and, and, and they're probably right on this, that they are competing with Ohio, with Texas, with, um, with Arizona uh, to land these, these huge, um, you know, sort of manufacturing 2.0 type projects. And so they, they need access to this. We, we call this like millions of dollars, but it, it, it could mean just incentives or it could be tax breaks, tax credits. That's We're right. Literally like handing over a check for $500 million. Right. And uh, David Rosenberg from the IEDC, when he was asked about this by, by Representative Ed Delaney, uh, Indianapolis Democrat, you know, what is the steel closing fund? He sort of described it as cash performance grants. So if you meet these certain thresholds, you get all this money, which again, you know, something that's something the IEDC already does. They're just getting even more money to offer more money to these companies. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if if they actually have to dip into this. It will. Yeah. I'll be watching. There also is the uh, the site acquisition fund. There's $150 million to support uh, what IEDC calls strategic strategic sites initiative. I think this is something that we're seeing, for example, in Boone County. Where the the Leap Project, the Lebanon Research and Innovation District, is is taking shape, and the city, or not the city, the the state needed to swoop in, and they needed to acquire, really get agreements to acquire huge swaths of land, like like thousands of acres. Um, is this something that am I getting this right? Is this where the 150 million dollars would go? That kind of situation or a similar situation? That's right. So a lot like the deal closing fund, this is also a continuation of what the IEDC has already been doing in Boone County. Uh, for the past two years or so now, um, you know, acquiring land in Boone County for uh, the Leap District, this advanced manufacturing and technology park. And, uh, you know, according to the IEDC, they have something like 10,000 acres under contract. A lot of that is tied up in purchase agreements that you can't publicly, you know, view. Um, you know, they, they go to these, uh, you know, farm owners and, and landowners in Boone County and, and say, we'll offer you this uh, amount of money for your land. You know, we can't say what it's for. That's how at least how it was in the beginning uh, of this endeavor. Eventually, you know, word got out, um, partly thanks to the reporting of Mickey Shuey and, and uh, Daniel Bradley and others here, um, you know, showing what the state was doing. Um, and so lawmakers had already come to state lawmakers and said, uh, or excuse me, the IEDC had already approached lawmakers in the past and said, hey, we need money for certain economic development projects, right? It was pretty vague. Um, but this time they came back and said, we need 150 million for a uh, a revolving uh, site acquisition fund, which basically means the IEDC is getting all this money from from taxpayers to uh, to buy land in areas that are seen as uh, ripe for development, or um, you know, uh, like in the Leap District of Moon County. Uh, I'll be interested to see you know how much of this money will be used to buy any more land in Moon County. Or I suspect they're they're looking elsewhere in other parts of the state. Um, you know, 
uh, as as money pours in from the Federal Infrastructure Act for a lot of these green energy projects. Uh, you know, could we see the IDC start buying up land in Kokomo for something there, which is um, you know sort of going through a manufacturing renaissance, or uh, you know, will they look to uh, you know, south the southeastern part of the state. Um, so it, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what the IEDC does with that money. Yeah, the idea of the of the Leap District, I mean, first developed independently of Lebanon, right? I mean, they were they knew they needed something sort of like this massive compound, and they looked at different areas around the state. I assume so. They probably have like a whiteboard with a bunch of different places, you know, where they have investigated the ability to do that. That's right. And, you know, ultimately they chose Boone County because of its, uh, you know, proximity to uh, Purdue and Indianapolis. They're calling it a hard tech corridor, uh, sort of, you know, linking the, the Purdue's, you know, incredible STEM infrastructure, um, you know, with the economic engine that is Indianapolis. And so right in between, uh, you've got this uh, burgeoning uh, tech park, which is just currently all vacant farmland right now. But that's the long term vision. And if they can uh, get the water, if they can get the water, <laughs> uh, which is a whole no, a yeah. whole separate issue almost. Um, and uh, yeah, they ultimately chose Boone County. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see where else they might look. And let's wrap up by discussing Senate Bill 4. This was one that we knew about way ahead of the session. Uh, there are a lot of fanfare for this bill before it officially was filed. It vastly increases the amount of money that the state provides to county public health departments. Uh, and I think the, the number they landed on was $225 million right, over the next two years from the current funding level of about $7 million per year. And the idea here, I think, was to uh, improve the quality of public health programs on the local level, hopefully head off problems that many Hoosiers have with smoking, obesity, reproductive health care, uh, catching diseases early in their development uh, instead of, you know, waiting forever, you know, to take a look at that, that problem you're having with your chest. Uh, and just in general, uh, hopefully raise the state's lower than average age of mortality. So it's a major undertaking that could affect the public health programs of all 92 counties. Uh, what is the best way to follow up on this? So uh, the the most obvious answer that comes to mind is is how many county health departments are going to opt into this? How many counties are going to opt into this? Because uh, this is a... Uh, as they say in, in the legislature, this is a may provision, not a shall. So uh, it's completely optional. And, you know, the reason for that is because during the pandemic, local health departments, uh, you know, had a lot of uh, had a lot of power, had a lot of say in, uh, you know, declaring public health emergencies, requiring people to wear masks. And, you know, obviously there was a lot of backlash from that. So uh, the reason that lawmakers had this, you know, be optional is because they didn't want to create the perception that there was this, uh, you know, top-down mandate from the state uh, that you know local health departments are going to, you know, uh, have to do certain things because the state says so. Um, so you know, I think without that, they probably wouldn't have been able to get this passed. Um, you know, given how passionate lawmakers are and local officials are about having uh, local control. Um, but the downside of that is, you know, I don't think you're going to see all, uh, 92 counties opt into this. And, um, you know, ironically, you might see a lot of counties that need it the most not opt into this because a lot of, a lot of rural counties in the state that, you know, maybe don't have adequate, uh, you know, they might even not have a, have a hospital or a trauma center or just adequate, uh, you know, public health. Those same counties might be more wary of, you know, 
entering something like this, entering an agreement like this that you know uh, requires uh, so much you know uh, cooperation from from the state. Uh, so that's the most obvious situation. I'm also wondering the long term effects. You know, is this going to be enough to move the needle? Because the the governor's public health commission, you know, this huge panel of lawmakers and health professionals, they all got together and concluded that Indiana needs to spend. $240 million more a year on public health to fall in line with the national average of what states are spending on public health. And ultimately, the number they arrived at was, was less than half that. It was $225 million over two years. Hmm. So, so the first year was kind of a what would you say? Kind of a lead up year. Yeah. The first year is 75 million. The next year is 150. Um so you know, is this is it going to be enough to move the needle? And furthermore, we won't know for a while because this is this is public health. This is you know this is something that takes <clears throat> years and years to to see uh, to see the benefits of. Yeah, that's what occurred to me. Is what are the metrics going to be? And then are the counties going to be able to accurately track the metrics? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, how do you how do you measure somebody who didn't die? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, somebody who lived another 10 years because, you know, they got adequate, uh, you know, care for a cardiac condition, right. adequate care or, you know, someone who got uh, good care uh, when they were pregnant uh, and, and thus that didn't die in childbirth. And the idea is that, you know, um, you know, every person is a statistic. And, and so, you know, if you have one person living longer, one person, um, you know, uh, surviving a, a pregnancy complication. Um, you know, you'll see the life expectancy rate go up because of certain people living longer and you'll see the maternal mortality rate go down is the idea there. Yeah. But in the meantime, legislators will will be asked, I'm sure, in the next two years from now, please increase the amount of money. I was mm-hmm. just going to say that's what I shouldn't be looking that far down the line yet. But I'm also wondering what happens two years from now when we go into the next budget. How are we going to gauge SB4 as we go into the the next biennial budget and what will what will happen then but i shouldn't i shouldn't wish that upon us this soon we just finished this <laughs> session so well let's get back together in a year this should be fun actually we should get back together in a year absolutely and see like okay what have we learned yes how about that yes absolutely awesome sounds good well thank you guys for taking so much time to help me out with this i really appreciate it yeah no thank problem you. my thanks again to peter blanchard and casey smith you can follow peter's reporting in the ibj and in our weekly e-newsletter focused on politics and government, The Rundown. And Casey reports on politics and state government on nearly a daily basis for Indiana Capital Chronicle, which you can find online. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. First up, Indianapolis officials are trying to capitalize on construction of the $4.3 billion IU Health Hospital Complex on downtown's north side with a new tax increment financing district that could spur more investment in the area. Mickey Shuey has more on the district, which was approved last month. Peter Blanchard explains how the business community benefited from this year's legislative session through tax relief, tax credits, and other financial incentives. And this week's focus section features a new technology that lets corn plants signal when they're in distress. You can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. 
I will say that it's easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you are a subscriber. And you may not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. Now works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana Story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.